So, morning, everyone. As Luke said, we are continuing our series this morning, looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians. And we've reached chapter 2 and verse 19. So, if you're following it on your Bible, it'll be on the screen as well, um, or in the books. Either way is fine. So, Philippians 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, that I, may, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Back in the early 90s, I lived in, in Paisley, and the church I went to at the time, we had a, a bit of a problem. It was, it was a good problem to have in that we were growing, and we were getting too big for the building that we were in. So we started praying to God. We were around about 120 people at the time, and that was the size of the building we had. But we were looking for a building that seated 300, and we needed space for kids' work and youth work, and we needed, or we wanted to, to start a coffee shop and a bookshop, and it, for it to be in the centre of the town as well. Now, all those things were impossible on the, the budget that we had. So we started a building fund and we started praying to God that he would provide. And he did, miraculously. He, he actually provided something that ticked all those boxes. And it was, it was right in the centre of town. It was actually, it previously belonged to the Paisley Daily Express. So the, the, the printing press, the, the, where that was, we stripped all that out and that became the sanctuary. And the offices became space for kids' work and, and so on. And uh, I was um, in my teenage years at that time, and it was summer holidays, and there was a lot of work to do to get the building ready. So myself and some of my friends, we, we got stuck in. We were doing things like mixing the mortar for the brickies, and we were doing some painting and a lot of clearing out and everything else. And one of the things I cleared out was this old desk that had been in the office. And I took it home, and I used it then to study for my hires and through university, but when I was cleaning out the drawer of the desk, I came across these letters. Dear Mr. McLeod, we are writing this letter to inform you that we have received reports that you've fallen asleep in the dark room during work hours. <laughs> this is a serious violation of our company's policies and procedures and has negatively impacted your productivity and the quality of your work. This letter serves as a final warning. The next letter, this is going one of two ways, right? Either he's employee of the month or, dear Mr. McLeod, we regret to inform you that your employment with the Paisley Daily Express is being terminated effective immediately 
due to your violation of company policies and procedures. As you're aware, falling asleep in the darkroom during work hours is a serious violation. <laughs> These short letters, they're written for a very practical purpose, but actually we learn a little bit about the suitability of Mr. McLeod to do a role in a newspaper, possibly late at night where there's a nice cosy darkroom. And we also learn a little bit about the Paisley Daily Express as well and their role as an employer. And it's the same with this section of the letter, of Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's written for a very practical purpose, and at first glance, it almost seems like he's sorting out these travel arrangements and other bits and pieces. But actually, through it, we learn quite a lot about Timothy, Epaphroditus, and even Paul himself, who's written the letter as well. So we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning looking, first of all, at Timothy, what we learn about him, then Epaphroditus. So Timothy, first of all, Timothy is someone who is trustworthy, someone who is Christ-like. We, we see that Paul saying he is no one else who is like him. He's displaying the attributes that Luke spoke about a couple of weeks ago, those attributes in the first four verses of chapter two. In humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests. That's what we looked at as being one of the, the Christ-like things that we're called to be. And Paul's saying that, that Timothy is someone who does this. He shows genuine conf- concern for your welfare. He looks out for others rather than his own interests. Timothy, actually, we come across a number of times through the Old Testament. So the first time we learn about Timothy is in Acts 16. That's where Paul's on his second missionary trip. He's working his way through uh, different countries, and he, he comes to a place called Lystra, which is where he meets Timothy. We read about it in Acts 16. And we read that Timothy was someone who was well thought of by the other believers. This was about 10 years before Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians. So he's quite young at this time, but he's someone who is well thought of by the other believers. He's someone who's strong in character already. And Paul sees this and he decides to take take him along on his missionary journey with him. So Shortly after that, as we read through Acts 16, they actually get to Philippi and they plant the church in Philippi. So it doesn't talk about Timothy being there at the time, but it says that he's gone on the missionary journey. He's there with Luke, Paul, Silas, and he's there helping plant that church in Philippi. He's someone that Paul has spotted that character in and someone that had been working alongside Paul, therefore, for those next 10 years as Paul begins to train him up. Paul now says in verse 22 that he is as a son. He's serving him as a son with his father. As a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Now, quite common in the Middle East at that time for a son to grow up and to to start learning the family trade and to join his, his father. Maybe not quite as common right now, but we still do see those examples around. So if you were looking, for example, for a builder, and you were looking on the internet and you saw a company called Chittick and Sons Builders, then you might think, well, that's a reputable company. That would be someone who's been in the trade for maybe 25, 30 years, and he's trained up his sons to be with him and work with him in, in that industry. What you wouldn't be expecting is myself and my sons then to, to rock up. My sons are 10 and 12. <laughs> that's not the kind of thing you'd be looking for. Instead, it's this, this kind of image that Paul's creating of someone who's been with him for a a number of years. He's grown in maturity. He's now a full part co-worker 
working alongside Paul. With our sons, we've been watching uh, the, the Star Wars films again recently from the very start. Um, they're 10 and 12, so they're, they're just kind of watching it for the first time. And in that, again, one of the things that struck me is the, the Jedi Knights are always looking for that apprentice that they're going to train up next. So we get Qui-Gon, who trains up Obi-Wan Kenobi. And then later on, we get Obi-Wan Kenobi taking Anakin Skywalker and him becoming his apprentice that he trains up. It's similar with, with Paul as well. So Paul, we learn elsewhere, was trained up by, by Gamaliel. He was a, a high-ranking rabbi of the day. It's looking something like Liam Neeson. <laughs> and then Paul takes on Timothy as his apprentice. And he trains him up as well. We read elsewhere in this, we were looking at in, in chapter 1 at the fact that, that Paul's under house arrest right now in Rome. And he doesn't know how the judgment's going to go. He's not had his trial yet. He doesn't know how long he's got. So his eyes are outwardly focused. I'm going to train up Luke. I'm going to train up, sorry, um, Timothy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to send him to you when when, when we're ready. Now, Timothy, I mentioned we we read about him a number of times, so the, the story doesn't end here with Timothy. Later on, Paul does send him, and he actually goes to the church in Ephesus. And we've got the letters 1st and 2nd Timothy that Paul sends to Timothy while he's in the church in Ephesus. That's roughly three and five years after the letter to the Philippians. And the thing that's really interesting to me is that even though he's had now 13, 15 years where he's been under Paul's guidance, he's still not leaving him. He's still giving him that, that feedback. He's still encouraging him. Feedback is so important when we're looking at training up leaders. I remember when I was uh, in my 20s, we were going to church at the time that uh, did the, the four W's. Does anyone remember the four W's at um, cell groups? They were cell groups which were looking to, to grow and multiply. Not divide, because that's a negative thing, but cells multiply. So you're constantly looking to try and train up the next leaders that are going to take on that, that cell that you've multiplied out of the group that you're in right now. There were pluses and minuses to this. Some people hated the change of having their small group constantly multiplying out. But the positive bit for me was that you're trying to train up that leader the whole time. So the four W's were worship, word. Sorry, I've forgotten the first one. Welcome. Yes, you're there. Welcome, worship, word. And then the last one was either works or witness, depending on who you listen to. (laughs) The important thing was that the leader didn't take each section of the, of the, of the small group. Instead, they, they trusted this out to someone else. And at the end of it, they, they gave feedback and, and guidance in terms of what, how that had gone. And I was in a group with a guy called John Marshall. He, he led the group, and he entrusted some of these things to me. And he was brilliant at this feedback. He would call me up sometimes that night afterwards at kind of, you know, 10 o'clock. And uh, he would call me up and he'd just talk through it. Steve, how did it, how did it go for you? What do you think was good tonight? What could have gone better? What we do next time? And then some more direct stuff as well sometimes when required. You know, often, I don't, know if, I don't think we're very good at this direct feedback always as British people. We kind of skirt around it rather than, than giving it. I had to give some developmental coaching recently to someone at work. And I really don't like doing it. Before I did it, I, I went and spoke to one of the other leaders and made sure that I was aligned on the message and that the points were fair and clear. And uh, this other leader, he's from Chile, 
And the last thing he said to me was, Steve, don't be British about it. <laughs> and I kind of had a wry smile on my face probably, and he said, no, I'm serious, it's really important. This feedback needs to be given, they need to hear it. You cannot be British about it. Paul, and we read his feedback in 1 Timothy, he is not British about it. He's really clear. Don't look, don't let anyone look down on you. Do not neglect your gift. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Do not fall asleep in the dark room. <laughs> I forgot to highlight that one. Going back to the Star Wars example, Anakin Skywalker, he's kind of got this, um, so he's been trained up by, by Obi-Wan Kenobi, as I said, and he's got this kind of temptation going on in his life where he's got to work out, am I going to carry on with the Jedi or am I going to go over to the dark side? And the temptation becomes too much for him and he gives into it. And Paul wrote down this very clear instruction. He says at the start of 1 Timothy 4, the reason he's doing it is because of this battle. So he says, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. It's a real battle. And he doesn't want to see Timothy kind of give in to the dark side. So Timothy was someone who was Christ-like in the way that he was serving. He served alongside Paul. And that's really important to, to notice the wording there as well. So when Paul talks about it, he says, he served with me. He doesn't say he served me, but he says he served with me. The two of them were serving alongside. And that word servant, that word serve, is really important as well. So it's the same root word, served, as servant. And often we think of those as being different things in English because someone in a restaurant will serve us. We don't see them rightly. We don't see them as a servant. But what Paul is saying here is that we are servant leaders working alongside each other, together. That Christ-like example again, laying down your life and becoming a servant leader for the church. And Paul, in his reaction to that, he's not looking to hold on to Timothy, but he's looking instead to send Timothy out again. And that's what we read in this passage. He's looking to send Timothy as soon as possible to the church in Philippi. And that's the model. That's the model of church planting. We grow up leaders in order to send them out, our best, the best people we have, those are the ones we're looking to send. Timothy says, sorry, Paul says he's got no one like Timothy, and that's who he's looking to send out. So that's Timothy. Let's look at Epaphroditus. Unlike Timothy, we don't actually learn anything else in the whole Bible about Epaphroditus. This is the only time that he's mentioned now, Paul still talks about him in, in glowing terms. He holds him in high esteem, but it's different language he uses this time. So rather than talking about him as my son, as this person that I've had a relationship with for several years, now he talks about him as my brother, my co-worker and fellow soldier. Epaphroditus, as we learned before, had taken a, a gift to Paul. So Paul's under house arrest in Rome. And Epaphroditus has taken this gift. So he's traveled from Philippi, the church there, hundreds of miles to take this gift to Paul. It's around about two or three months it would have taken him to do this journey. And somewhere along the way, he's become ill. Now, I know you're thinking often when we travel, we get a little bit sick, get uh, 
dodgy stummy, tummy or whatever else from something we ate. But this is something more than that. It's not just that he's made the mistake of eating the, the breakfast on the British Airways flight after a, an overnight flight. It says here that he was so ill that he almost died. And Paul's reaction to that is, is, is really interesting. So Paul, first of all, says that in verse 27, he says, God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Paul as we said, is under house arrest. So that's the first sorrow. It's, it's a difficult time, obviously, for Paul. And what he's saying here is that had Epaphroditus died as well, then that would have been another sorrow on top of that. More difficulty, more hardship. Later on in verse 28, he's looking to, to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi so that he may have less anxiety. So this has caused him anxiety. It's caused him sorrow. Later on, when we get through the series in Philippians, we'll look at the, some of the famous verses in chapter 4 where Paul says things like, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And then he goes on and says, Do not be anxious about anything. When we get to those sections, we've got to hold that intention with what we've read here. So here Paul's saying, I had sorrow. Well, where's your rejoicing, Paul? Weren't you rejoicing? Here he's saying, I was anxious about this. But he said, do not be anxious about anything. Sometimes as, as Christians, we can kind of almost put on this false mask when we come on a Sunday morning. We don't want to, we don't want to show emotions that we think we shouldn't be showing as, as Christians. But the reality is that at times we will go through periods of sorrow. We will go through periods of anxiety. And we need to be open about those so that people can come alongside us and help us. When we look at the life of Jesus... He also showed those very same emotions as well. So he wept when Lazarus died. He showed those emotions there. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was so anxious that he began to sweat blood. The important thing is, though, in both those examples, he kept his eyes on God. So he wasn't looking at the the circumstances around him and letting those overwhelm him. Instead, he kept his hope in the God who is the God over all things, the sovereign saviour. With the case of Lazarus, he raised Lazarus from the dead. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he took his disciples around him. He got them to pray with him. He still had to go and endure the death on the cross, but he had the strength to do it. God gave him that strength. It's right that we show emotions when we're going through hard times. It's right that we... We do that and we gather people around us. But we need to keep our eyes on God as well. That full verse in Philippians 4 verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. My parents taught us this lesson, actually, when we were really young. We were going through a period where we saw several kind of hard things going on. And uh, one small example of this was uh, we were living in the countryside at the time, and it was about seven miles to get to, to church. And um, we uh, got in this car on a, on a Sunday morning, and the car wouldn't start, so it was just cranking over. Now, we'd used it the day before, and it was absolutely fine. And then suddenly, we're about to go to church, and we're, we're trying to start the car, and it's just not starting. And my mom's reaction was, instead of like being all anxious and we're, right, just get out of the car, we can't go... She was like, 
right, kids, start praying. <laughs> so we all start praying in the back. And then after a couple of minutes, right, Derek, try again. <laughs> Derek was my dad. Um, so he tries again, dooka, 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 and the car's off, and we, we go to church. Thank you, God, we're off. <laughs> and this was their example. This was their kind of way of doing it, right? Every time that we, we face these hardships, we're going to pray as a family. We're not going to kind of get overwhelmed by them. That's what we were brought up with, but it's still a lesson you have to continually keep on learning and keep coming back to. This week at work, while I was preparing for this, I had more opportunities to, to, to do that. So we've got a big review on Thursday coming up, and we've got people coming across to Germany to check where we're up to on our, on our project. And we had to get some testing done to, to, to provide the data to show that we were ready and where we, where we should be on the project. We kept on having these problems that were preventing us getting the data. So what do we do? Do we have anxiety because that's going to happen? Or, or do I take this to God in prayer? So each night, I didn't do it. Like, I didn't open up our meetings. Right, guys, let's just all bow our heads in prayer. <laughs> we're going to forget our cause and effect diagrams today, and we're going to go straight to... No, I, I, I just prayed at night and prayed to God that he would give us guidance, that he would give us help. And one by one, the problems were knocked over. And we should get the data tomorrow. It's all going to be fine. <laughs> Paul's clear in verse 27. He says, God had mercy on him. God's mercy, that's him showing his compassion to us. So it's God taking action on our behalf because he is a compassionate God. Now, it doesn't explicitly say in this passage, that he was healed because Paul and Timothy were praying for him. I imagine they were. It doesn't explicitly say that. It doesn't explicitly say that, he was, that God healed him and it wasn't like medical intervention or something else. The same thing with our car starting. Was that just coincidence? Or was it because we prayed? Or would we have solved the problems at work this week anyway, even if I hadn't prayed? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. But I do know that God is able, that God is a sovereign God, that God is a God who is compassionate and full of mercy. When he came in front of Moses in Exodus 34, he showed his face to Moses, and he said to Moses who he was, he said, I am the Lord, Yahweh was the word he used, I am the Lord, the God who is compassionate and gracious. And that's repeated again and again through the the Old Testament. He's a gracious and compassionate God. When we begin to focus and take our prayers to God instead of looking at the things around about us, it takes the emphasis off of us. It takes the emphasis off of our ability to solve things and it puts it back in in God. The more I pray, the more God answers. He's a gracious and compassionate God that I can call on. And then when he does answer, it turns it back into thanks and praise. So by Friday, I was able to thank him and praise him for the things that he had resolved this week as we saw those different issues being resolved. Whereas if it's just all me that's done it and our team that's done it, we don't turn our eyes back to God and thank him. As he does answer the prayers in the small ways, we begin to trust him more. We begin to put our hope back in Christ and in Jesus and in God as the sovereign God of all things. We had that word from Jonathan as well this morning, believing God for the big things really fits in with this. 
Believe in God for the big things. Paul said, I'm confident in the Lord. In verse 24, he's confident because he's seen what God can do. He's prepared to put his life on the line. Where Paul is held up in in house arrest, Epaphroditus has also put his life on the line to come and serve him. Now, as I said, we don't know an awful lot about Epaphroditus. He's likely that he was an elder or some kind of leader in the church in Philippi. So he's come to take this, this gift Paul describes him as a co-worker, so he's doing some similar work to what Paul does. But he also uses this other word as well, which I find really interesting. He describes him as a fellow soldier in verse 25. A fellow soldier. So Paul is suffering in prison. Epaphroditus almost lost his life. He's recognizing that the, the battle is not a battle of flesh and blood. It's the same kind of Terminology he uses in Ephesians 6, isn't he? When he talks about putting on the full armor of God because we're in a battle, we're soldiers. Ephesians 6, he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, sometimes we think we don't want to over-spiritualize things. Like, was the car really not starting because you were under some kind of attack? Or is it just a mechanical failure? We want to rationalize everything in the West, don't we? We want to think, no, well, that car wasn't starting because you didn't put fuel in it or because uh, the fuel somehow wasn't getting to the injectors or the spark plugs weren't sparking or whatever else. John Mark Cromer, Cromer puts it like this. Most Westerners don't buy the idea of an invisible world all around us. It feels like superstitious nonsense from pre-modern man. I mean... Come on, we're educated. We know better. We have Wikipedia. (laughs) Paul's really clear. It is a battle. There's soldiers fighting together in that battle. And I I think, you know, this is especially true for our, our leaders as well. Our leaders are on the front line serving God. I I grew up as a pastor's kid, so I was kind of really aware of this, this spiritual battle going on at times and, and the fact that, that leaders are at the, at the front of this. We need to lift them up in prayer. I know Debs has had a, had a really rough time this week where she's been really ill. It's, it's not just our leaders, it's their families as well. We've got to lift them up in prayer. They're on the front of that battle. We're really blessed in this church, with Dan, with Luke, with Chris, we've got leaders that are really humble, really Christ-like. They display these, these attributes. And the other thing that, that really struck me as I was reading through this was verse 29, where he says that we need to honor people like Epaphroditus. These leaders that are prepared to give up everything, that are prepared to be on that front line, at the front of the battle, making sacrifices for the kingdom of God. We need to honor them for those sacrifices they're making. It's really important that we do that. So, in this section of the letter, we find out more about the three men, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, who were prepared to lay down their lives to become God's servants. So for Paul, he was 
stuck under house arrest, but he was still choosing to look around, to look outward, to look after that church in Philippi, to grow Timothy and develop him. Timothy himself, he was also selfless. Paul describes him as someone that he had no one else like him. He was prepared to value others above himself, prepared to serve the church, prepared to serve Paul. And Epaphroditus, he was prepared to risk everything, even to lay down his life to help Paul. These are all examples that kind of give us practical insight into what it means when we look at verse at chapter 2 and this call to, to lay down our life to be more Christ-like. Just want to pray quickly, and then we're going to sing a song in response. You know, as I look through this, I realize again, it's only possible by the grace of God to do this, to lay down our lives. It's only possible by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. It's not something we can do in our own strength. It's something we have to keep coming back to God and looking for him and his Holy Spirit to fill us, to enable us to be Christ-like. So I just want to pray for that now. Yeah, Lord, I thank you that you are a God who is compassionate and merciful and gracious. Yeah, Lord, I just want to call on you again, that you would come and fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to be more like you, to be more like Christ, to be able to lay down the things that we hold on to, that we fix our eyes on, and instead fix our eyes on you. Help us be prepared to to lay down our own lives, to do the things that you're calling us to do. And help us to focus on you rather than the things around about us that are going on. Call on your name. Thank you that you're a God who answers. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and fill us again, I pray. Amen.